Wallingrad. Ungrateful heart. Tutto è passato, non c'è benzi più. Here we are. Hi, everyone. Hi. Oh, my God. We have theories and thoughts from living our little lives, (laughs) and we want to share them with you. Okay. How is everybody doing? What's the 411? (laughs) Everyone's been answering our little review question. Oh, my God. We're honored. (laughs) Yes. So, a couple weeks ago, I got a bad review. (laughs) I got like a really bad review Um, and it hurt my feelings a lot and then I sort of got over it like I took a deep breath and also this is kind of unfair to like the entire cast and production of the show but it was like a universally bad review like the entire situation was panned and as much as that sucks like it would have been worse no totally everything and then been like but that bitch yeah Christine no that's a very (laughs) fair concession to make that is that probably feels good it was just this person was in a state and had a mission so I've been thinking a lot about reviews and I've gotten one other bad review in my life although I just went back and read it for this chit chat and it really wasn't that bad especially compared to this most recent (laughs) (laughs) um But it got me thinking about like reviews and like our identity and like how it's tied up in review. I don't, it's sometimes tied up in reviewing, although I feel like reviews are an important part of the ecosystem. Not everyone agrees, which I found interesting. Mm. Anyway, so I took a couple of steps. The first step I took is I wrote all of my bad um, attributes into a new bio that I've written (laughs) that I would love to read out here. So this is my 2023-2024 bio. Known for, quote, faring less well than her castmates, <laughs> mezzo-soprano Perry Cristina is quickly making a name for herself in the local New York opera scene. Hailed for her neurotic interpretations, overuse of her hands, and being generally <laughs> unconvincing, Perry's voice has been described as inaudible, too high, too young, and inexperienced technically. She has been applauded for being, quote, convincing as a male youth. <laughs> you should literally post this. This is so, it just like took all of the like power from. Yes, exactly. <laughs> like I did that and I was able to really laugh at it and also like, t- like get a little bit of distance. Right. I don't know. Yeah. Um, Which like we'll get into in a bit, but that's the same journey I have been taking with identity as well. Yeah. And this is happening for both of us across these different mediums, I guess. Um, mm-hmm. And it's just really interesting how these two conversations we're having like ended up fitting with each other perfectly. But I'll go into yes. my reviews slash my identity questions later. But well, I want to know about your reviews. Should we do your reviews before we get into the words that people messaged us um we could I mean yeah I'll like I'll precursor like what's gonna happen yeah, yeah, in, yeah. The, in the identity convo I've had a couple of cute reviews but uh one was at Miami Music Fest one mm-hmm. was at UNC where I went for undergrad um but they were both written by people with websites that were like truly built in 1999 like truly <laughs> like 2d you know where it's like click a mm-hmm. button like it's like yeah, html yeah, yeah. coding that you and I could do in and an like afternoon. the type of thing where you can like leave a comment on every yes. single possible yes, thing and it's every like why page. would I want to leave a comment yes. on this? <laughs> 
and like no out external links to anything it's just like a page it's like so <laughs> insane so they were both on there and it's just like giant blocks of text because it's like oh, a yeah, blog it's like zanga-esque <laughs> and you know it felt and this is I'll go into this further in the identity conversation but I specifically remember with both of these reviews that were extremely you know kind toward me and actually like specifically me and other people they were like kind of shitting on and mm-hmm. it's so insane because like both of those cute reviews I still was like shitting on myself because my idea of my identity could only be confirmed by anything outside of me it couldn't be altered sure. so like I was in a mindset where I was not achieving what I wanted to achieve and I was not where I wanted to be so no matter how kind someone wrote words I still found a way to twist it as a part of a narrative I was writing about myself that like I wasn't doing enough I wasn't good enough so of course when I got both of these reviews I was like well that's weird because they're shitting on these castmates that are really good accomplished singers so he must just have a bad ear and that's why he likes me and literally Mm, doesn't like them that's so interesting right like nothing would change nothing would change my mind because (laughs) I already decided what my avatar was so Mm -hmm. everything was only a confirmation of that and then like the other one that was good I think I was just like, oh, well, I mean, it's a stupid review for like a stupid online thing that doesn't exist. So it's stupid. Like, what am I supposed to do? Like, care about this? And I just could not embody a second of like gratitude or like a congratulatory energy toward myself because that's just not what I was like allowing for myself in that identity. Sure. Like, it just wasn't the mindset. And like, now it's almost a decade later since I received those because that was like literally undergrad. And now, like, if I got those, I'd be like, oh, like, that's so fucking cute. Like, that's yeah, literally yeah. so cute. And, like, yeah, it's for a stupid publication, but aren't most reviews, like, sorry. Like, <laughs> aren't they all kind of stupid? Everything's like, stupid, therefore nothing stupid. Exactly. Right? <laughs> exactly. But I just, like, it blew my mind thinking about this in preparation for the episode that I was so attached and grounded to this, like, one version of myself that everything was only going to confirm that. Mm-hmm. And it's it's so interesting to look back on. I was so stubborn, <laughs> you know, which, like... Well, how do you think you would have reacted if they said something nasty about you? I would have been, like... Honestly, it would have just been an easier thing because it's, like, mm-hmm. I had to do all these backflips to convince myself these good reviews were sure. telling me something bad about myself. So a bad yeah. review would have been, like, okay, like, yeah, totally. Like, that's probably so true. Like, it would have been so easy for me to, like, put that in my back pocket and, like, just, like, because I was in such a mindset of, like, work harder, like, try harder, like, get better, like, this, like, militant, like, rigidity of, like, just improving. Yeah. It's never done. It's never done. There's never a moment of respite kind of vibe. Um, yeah. So I would have been, like, a bad review would have been so chill in a certain way. I would have been, like, mm-hmm. yeah, I, like, I'm young. I need to get better and I'm, like, not good enough and da-da-da. But this good review, I just remember doing these bad backflips to be like this is so fucked up (laughs) because look at this website look at this weird (laughs) dude like you know like (laughs) when like I have listened to recordings from those performances like just bootleg like silly especially the ones at UNC I have them on like a weird Google Drive like who knows how I even got them but like I literally sound fine and I know that this happens to you too like years later you listen back and you're like yeah you're like everything's fine I sounded fine like I'm a smart singer I'm a smart person I have good aesthetic taste it's just it's fascinating how we tried so hard back then and maybe we still do in the present but you can see it in the past more clearly how we wanted to beat everyone to the punch of saying the thing about Mm -hmm. ourselves you know yes Oh my God. I have to work so hard. Yeah, against that. I totally. And it's like, it's a protection thing almost. And so it's like, yeah, mm-hmm. I shouldn't say. And it's like, that's what I feel like I was doing too, is like just being like, yeah, they're right. 
like I, I have nothing to hide. Like, yeah, they said this thing that was a critique of me and they were right. Like, yeah. sure. You know, like when I'm done singing an aria in front of people, like in rehearsal, I want to be like, oh, well, that measure. Right, you know, the right, measure right, 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 right. And whenever I see other people do that, it's so it's immature. Mm-hmm. Like it mm-hmm, feels very mm-hmm, young. Mm-hmm. But when it's happening to me, it is so hard, incredibly hard to resist. It's so hard to just say thank yeah. you when people yeah. applaud and mm-hmm. move on. Oh, my God. It's like the hardest thing in the world. So I in thinking mm-hmm. about this wanted to ask everyone else because I know that I have these reviews that sort of haunt mm-hmm. my dreams these single words honestly and I misremember mm, them wow like the one she actually the one review I have been called inaudible before but the one that I was thinking of where she said mm-hmm. I was inaudible she said that she could she couldn't hear my low mm, okay which is not the same thing as um, everything you sing being inaudible which I feel like yes. you've told me she but, said before yeah and she oh. never said that that's what I'm saying we can any opportunity to reinforce we reinforce Mm -hmm. even to misremembering like that far yeah so in thinking about that I wanted to know like what is everyone else's like ghost word that like comes to them in the middle of the night and like it's whispered in their ear so I asked on Instagram what exactly did I say I don't even remember so I asked what words or phrases in reviews have stayed with you, haunted you, kept you up at night, etc. We'd love to commiserate and laugh about them and maybe read them on the pod. Hee <laughs> hee, which is what we're doing right so now. So true. <laughs> so we got a ton of incredible, frustrating, sometimes hilarious responses. And obviously they're all going to be anonymous. And we picked, I picked some of my favorite ones. And maybe we, we won't get to all of them or we'll just kind of yeah. like read them out. But I thought it would be so empowering to like read them on this podcast for like no one fucking gives yeah. a fuck. <laughs> this stuff that like breaks your heart. And I know like that first review that I've told you about, I read that first thing in the morning and I was sleeping over at my boyfriend's house um, before we moved in together. And I had such a visceral body reaction. Like I literally broke out into a sweat and it woke him up. I think I remember and this. And he was like, Perry, what is wrong? And I was like, I got kind of a bad review. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, it really stays with you. But I think by acknowledging them and kind of laughing at them, we take away mm-hmm. the power, right? It's like, we, oh, my God, I am kind of, this is maybe a little bit of a cheesy no tell. comparison. It's Monsters Inc. Wait, stop. <laughs> stop. Stop. It's like laughter will laughter like will kill cure. the monster. But it does, honestly. And just to pull on like a thing that's like a web off of that, you know, like the Gottman Institute, like those hoes that like research relationships and they're like, yeah, the like acknowledgement. Yes. The, the, like where it's like a bid, bid for attention. Yes. Yes. Um, your idea of the Monsters Inc. thing has this basis in reality that I actually think about a lot, which is that the Gottman Institute talks about like one of the best ways to diffuse any sort of conflict is to see the humor in it. And it's like one of Mm. the best indicators of longevity in a relationship is like, even when things are like as like fucked up as they can be, like you still find a way to like bring levity to it. Like if like, I definitely do that. If I'm like in a whiny mood, like I'll also just be like, I am literally whining like a child right now. Like that is my (laughs) current state. Thank you. You know, like as opposed to it, just like acting out your feelings and not being able to see it from a distance. Like Mm -hmm. laughter is the only, it's like literally the only way through. Oh, absolutely. And like, I love that. Cause like we all get pissy, but if you can like see it, it's like kind of funny on some level, like no matter what, I feel like that's like, 
also the way you get through having kids like kids are gonna break Mm -hmm. everything and ruin everything all the time and if you don't think that's like kind of funny like you probably just like really shouldn't bother having kids (laughs) like if you don't think that's hilarious like it's gonna really suck yeah (laughs) you know like if everything is like a really huge horrible deal yeah if it's like oh my like vase broke then like you're gonna have like a really hard like life (laughs) like with children you know what I mean Anyway, so I'm obsessed with your Monsters, Inc. analogy. I could not agree more with that. (laughs) Okay, incredible. So I wanted to like read some of them out loud and I categorized them into a couple of different categories. So the first category I'm going to read is um, all food related. I love. (laughs) Which I found very interesting. I know, that's so funny you pulled that out. That's exactly what it is. It's a good descriptor, but some of them make no sense. Like these people sent in these words and I was like, literally, what does that mean? (laughs) Is it a good thing or is it a bad thing? (sighs) They didn't really know, but it like really stuck with them. Okay, first of all, the word frothy. Like what? (laughs) I think it's a good, I think it implies movement or at least some sort of activity. An active voice. Frothy. I would have guessed that it had something to do with like the quality, like a okay. like the quality of something. I didn't. I, but that's just so wild. Like it feels like it's kind of like sommeliers describing wine mm. and like a good psalm versus like a mediocre psalm that just says words. Yeah. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like I'm just like okay, anyone can say the word frothy, but like can they back up what they mean by that, or are they just like yeah, saying could, shit? You know? Could they identify another frothy singer? Exactly. <laughs> like if give me a taxonomy, give me a breakdown. Yeah. Like I, I need yeah. you to stand behind what you're saying. And some of these food words, I'm like they're just saying words. <laughs> I know. <laughs> you know? Okay. Like, Second and similar vein, lemony. Can you imagine your voice being lemony? I. Wouldn't like to read that, and I don't even know why. <laughs> like, I totally get that that would stick with you because it's just like, what? Yeah, I think taking a step back, I love lemon flavored desserts. Mm-hmm. So I feel like bright acid, you know, kind of like hits you. Right. Um, Which I wish forward. they would say that. Yeah. Like, I, w- right. I wish they'd get to the cr- like the crux of it because I've been mm-hmm. called silvery and like strident is a word that I've heard not in a review but just a word that's like maybe more negative and toward like acidic maybe like that that Mm -hmm. world of words and like I can get behind that but lemony it feels like it's too far away from one thing that I wouldn't know what to do with it that's so interesting that's That's this problem with a lot of these words yeah it's too far away from one single thing yes exactly Another one, cloying, <laughs> which I do. I like that as a word. Yeah. And I think it's a great yeah. descriptor, but not for a singer. Right. <laughs> I wouldn't want to hear that. Exact. Exact. <laughs> and milky. That I what kind of. What the fuck does milk? For some reason, I feel like that's the only one that I'm like, I could see what they're trying to say maybe, but again, like weird smooth. choice. Yeah. Like smooth. Creamy. But it's not creamy. But it's not it's creamy. Milky. Right. <laughs> I just feel like they're not choosing a specific enough word. I'm yeah. critiquing all of these critics right now. Like. <laughs> All of them are getting a critique from us right now, like for not and having one, a good enough vocabulary. Right. Literally. <laughs> this one isn't really a food one. I just stuck it in because you could like kind of say it's a food one yeah. and I wanted it to be like a well-rounded little group. Mm-hmm. Mellow. That's definitely that a baritone. sucks. I hate that. I w- it was a tenor. Shut up. <laughs> Wait, a tenor being mellow is maybe 
That's a little weird of a word for a tenor voice. I know. I know. Like any Sorry, we're keeping them anonymous. Post that. We'll say what voice part you were. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like <laughs> this isn't Yeah, I know nothing about any of these singers. Yeah, I'm just like yeah. critiquing the critics where I'm like if yes. you meant mellow, what did you really mean? Because there's no tenor on earth that could be mellow because it's mm-hmm. a tenor voice. Like in my head. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like what the fuck? Yeah. I was like, "Oh, it must be like a bass who's like kind of high doing a local show." Exactly. Who's like, like oh. eyes are like half closed. Like, that's what mellow is you know (laughs) like a coloratura soprano can never be mellow they can't by nature you know what I mean yeah no 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 I have so many critiques for these critics yes well (laughs) next group literally so many critiques because it's really fucking annoying all sorts of physicality body related comments in addition to vocal comments so one person said they got a review saying that um it was remarkable that she could play such a good chocho song because she was so large. So she could play like a, a, a talent, a, it was great, impressive that she could play a 15 year old because she was so big. The audacity that people have to like say things out loud sometimes. Literally like, and like send it to print quote unquote. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. Send it to their <laughs> HTML coding blog. Literally. And this was incredible. A Juno-esque figure. I didn't know what that meant. Oh, my God. Right? Wait, hang on. Let me tell you. Imposingly tall and shapely. Juno-esque. It's like, like nobody little fucking asked. Like, nobody yeah, fucking asked. Do you know what I mean? No like, literally nobody asked. I just can't believe these people are hired to critique, like, a performance and singing. And they're, like, describing people's bodies. Like, I really feel like every smart person in this world, which is, like, most of us, should just be, like oh to embody the like confidence of a mediocre fucking person who would Truly. dare to say something like that and send it to print with like their full pussy a mediocre like, reviewer yes, like this is it who literally want to write like literally can't think of anything else to say yes other than comment on like what's literally in front of them in their eyesight they should you know be, like that's so <laughs> embarrassing for them yeah literally so embarrassing yeah <laughs> i'm like so embarrassed for them right now <laughs> The other one that's related, which is so fucking insane, that someone ranked three of the women who are on stage by the size of their ass. Okay, so that person should and be this, in jail. In jail. And the, the person who sent this in used the word bottom. And so I was like, wait, are you talking about like, you know, that's E sweet. down to low <laughs> A? <laughs> and she was like, no, I'm talking about like my literal ass. <laughs> oh, um, okay, new uh, TTA investigative Nancy Drew episode. I want to find who that person is who wrote that and just like... And arrest him. Arrest him. <laughs> and we'll like put on a, um, those cameras, those GoPros, and we'll just go up to him and be like, yeah, we're actually here to arrest you. We can start like how to catch a predator, but how to catch, catch a, a bad, bad reviewer. <laughs> <laughs> no, because I'm inspired. Consider me inspired from this. Um... The other one, which really got me, um, this person said they were described as looking a little too incongruously Scandinavian. Okay, I, I, I'm thirsting for blood. Like, I need to find who all of these people are and write a review about their reviews. I know. We should, yeah, take the power back. Yeah, I'm, I want to look them all up and send them a lengthy review about the quality of their reviews. Mm-hmm. That's my new project. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm going to make a okay. sub stack. Literally, honestly, that would be very funny. I'm like, combine. Someone. Oh, I was. I was doing some research. We could do like a whole bigger episode on like reviews. It would probably be kind of fun, actually. I would love that. Um, someone not. I think maybe she was a visual artist. Did um 
she collected she called it like the dog pile or the, like pile of shit or something like that mm-hmm. she collected her bad reviews and like put them on her website oh i think i remember hearing about that there's people have yeah. like done this a lot throughout history like taken power back from their bad reviews and it's like yeah. it's not even us being bad sports it's just like if you're gonna talk no. about someone's ass like i'm gonna try to wreck you somehow because yeah. that's so yeah. fucked <laughs> like Okay, next section is reviewers just being idiots. We got a bunch of these. We got a bunch of people um, who were like, you know, called the wrong character. Mm-hmm. Someone wrote to us saying that they got a really nice compliment, but it was obviously supposed to be for the other singer Shut who was singing up. the other character. But they were like, well, it's literally in print. Like, you can Google it. So they put it in their bio. That's so funny. I would absolutely do it. Like, it's hard out here. Like, do what yeah. you gotta do, babe. Like, if I got something that was like, Perry de Christina had just sparkling, incredible high C's. Yeah, it's like, yeah, fuck I've it. Never, I don't sing fucking high C's in public <laughs> ever, but they sound so good. It's the Wild West out here. Like, take what <laughs> <Right>. you need. <laughs> oh, the shit where it's just like, the character's name or your name is listed, but there's no comment. Bro, I hate when that happens. Like, there was also it's just like, and people. Charlotte Jackson was there. Yeah. Dude, that's a bummer. Those are a bummer. <laughs> okay, and then I have some that didn't really fit into a category, but were just mean and rude. So I'm going to read off a couple of them. Mm-hmm. One, amateur hour. Two, struggled. Three, underdeveloped as a performer. Four, just loud. Shy. Unobtrusive. This phrase is really good came in and went out like a lamb oh my god jesus <laughs> striking if quiet we got two people who gave us shrill i've heard shrill before but i'll fucking take it <laughs> yeah right <laughs> oh choppy interesting and wiry i don't what know what that wiry means i'm definitely gonna add that to my Substack of critiquing critiques yeah that's wild literally Amateur hour, fuck that. I just know what all these people fuck look like. It. Do you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah. Because I know what a good review looks like. And I also just feel like mm-hmm. we could write them. Like, I just don't. Oh, absolutely. You know what I mean? Like, it's really not that hard to just, like, say something substantive that is also not, like, preying on, like, people's vulnerabilities and things that they mm-hmm. can't change. Like, it's really not that hard to do this well. Or the other thing, I feel like a lot of these words and phrases are, like, taking a lot of joy and happiness mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. being, like, fuck you guys. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Which I guess you can do that if you want, but also that's an art form, too. Yes. Like, being, like, a bitchy meme reviewer is also really hard and really hard to do well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And, like, isn't it just so much... I mean, like, wouldn't it just be so much easier to just be, like... You know, I mean, the worst thing that I could imagine saying about someone would be like, I don't know if this casting was perfect for this, but mm-hmm. within the role and within the music, I thought they did this really well. And I thought that this really showcased what their voice is like really well suited for. And then like other things, I don't think they were like a match for the role, but that's just like, I don't think it was the perfect casting. And that's like literally the meanest thing I could imagine myself saying. And that could be appropriate mm-hmm. for someone who's singing the role and knows that they may have like gotten a role that's like a little over their capabilities and like that's okay because who literally gives a shit if it's like especially if it's like local opera like can we just enjoy our lives please like Mm -hmm. really like but I would never be like they're really like loud and bad like are you fucking kidding me dude like people don't have a fucking what's the word I'm looking for they don't have like an educated opinion they don't have educated opinions especially some of these ones about like people's asses like it's like okay oh oh, and you're going to the miscellaneous I have something to say about some of the miscellaneous so take it away okay so one that actually goes along with kind of similar to what you were describing like kind of like reality checking Mm -hmm. someone wrote in and said that they finally got 
an actual good review and it made them go back and look at all of the other reviews they've gotten that they thought were good at the time and they were like oh like fuck this this is so lukewarm yeah like, this is actually what a good review yes. is oh my god we don't have <laughs> enough people like taking educated guesses at these things and like having mm-hmm. an educated opinion and this goes in i think this would be part of like a bigger conversation we'd eventually have but to like plant the seeds and also to like start the convo mm-hmm. um someone responded and was like I basically hate all reviews and I think they're really dumb and also made the argument that they were kind of um, a holdover from like a pre-internet era Mm. and that really reviews aren't that necessary anymore especially when there are um, so many streaming services yeah I don't know if I agree with that because I think about like I have a couple of people who I really trust with like movie reviews and kind of like cultural critics and if they really like a movie it's going to make me want to go see it. Absolutely. And I wish there was like some of that. Yes. In like the New York scene of like someone who is a tastemaker, who's a, like a taste collector, whose opinion I really value, who's like going to cool things. Like that, there's like, there's an, what did I, I said there was like a gaping hole. There is. <laughs> where where someone, someone should step in and make themselves like the trusted, hot classical music person who goes to shit. That isn't just the fucking Met. But that's... At, or like just at Lincoln I could not Center, agree more. You know? And I've been thinking about this a lot lately of just like what it means to be able to have your finger on the pulse. And a good critic, in my opinion, to your point, is not just someone who has an educated opinion on what they're seeing, but has this ability to zoom out and pull in threads from other cultural moments, either historically mm-hmm. or presently, and try to start aggregating what's going on in the culture and where this fits in. It's somebody who can contextualize for us because we are so oversaturated with content. Not everybody has the time to be like a cultural critic or to contextualize things for us. That's like what a tastemaker can do is be like, you know, yes, this show was like this, that, and the other. The casting was this, that, and the other, whatever. That's only one tiny minuscule part of a larger point of making a review in my opinion which is also like if you saw the show last year like this is kind of like a trend that we're seeing and like a lot of shows are starting to put like these like programming these kinds of things which really feels like it's reflective of this kind of thing happening in media in general like Mm, these things mm -hmm. build up and they have a story and if someone's able to zoom out and start building that story while we're in the middle of it that's like what's important for a critic to do because we don't all have time to do that and like I think about like you know someone like Alex Ross who like writes these books like listen to this or like the rest is noise or like the Wagner what is it I have it right there Wagnerism Mm -hmm. these these are you know books where he's trying to contextualize like the past in the present and like what is still related and like what we're seeing happen and from that educated opinion trying to predict like what's happening what's going to happen down the road and like where we're headed culturally and like there is an absolute gaping hole in that because these people are just going and saying that someone's loud like what the fuck does that do for me really or just like a neutral positive moving on sort of thing which does sort of like check the internet i think i agree with yeah. you where like yeah. they were a news source of like you know mm-hmm. if puccini does a show we can't all be at a show back in 18 right. fucking blah blah so like someone needs to say like what the fuck happened and like that's cool but like the bar needs to be a lot higher now of like i want to read someone who has something to say about placing this in a larger conversation 
And I just don't trust like, you know, the gigantic publications like good for the New York Times. Mm-hmm. Like, but I want someone who's like closer to the ground yes. and like a little more like, like boots on the ground mm-hmm. going to this shit mm-hmm. and someone who I think is a cool person. Right. Totally. <laughs> totally. Someone who like has their finger on the pulse and like, like I would read it. that Substack every fucking week. Absolutely. Like, tell me what's going on. Absolute. I could not agree more. And it's just like so much bigger than like, was this good? Was this bad? It's exactly. bigger than that. What does that even what mean? The fuck Especially does that mean? when it comes to a lot of the work that I'm doing, a lot of this local stuff, there's sort there has to be an understanding of there just isn't money. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it's not going to look like glitzy, glamorous good. And it can't just be to, about that. Like Exactly. But there are still trends within these local things. There are still really good singers. There's still like interesting stuff going on. Mm-hmm. I felt like I don't know if I'll cut this out. We got a nice review in um Parterre Box mm-hmm. that I felt like really understood mm. the project mm-hmm, mm-hmm, of like mm-hmm. local opera theater yeah um and and came into the auditorium with a kind of knowledge and understanding necessary to enjoy the show right um I love that. Which not everyone can do. Yeah. You know? And that's fine. But like that's that's so much more needed right now. I couldn't agree more. Totally agree. Um, Especially because I think there is talk about another huge gaping chasm between the Met and everything else that's going on right. in New York. Yeah. You know, like mm-hmm. there's a lot happening mm-hmm. and it's very People hard aren't to knitting bridge it that together gap. and we need to be yes. knitting that together to figure out yes. like what the fuck is going on. Yeah, because yeah. these aren't like isolated tiny companies no. doing whatever they want. Mm-hmm. There's they're part of this, I don't know, this world. Yeah. And giving it like kind of giving it gravity and seriousness. Giving it you know, gravity like, and seriousness. Absolute. <laughs> Love. Like we're making art here. Yeah. Like put some respect on your name. Um mm-hmm. Yeah, and just someone who can like see a larger thing than this like basic critique which like why do we why would I need you to say that like why would I need you to tell me that someone in the cast is shrill like really like (laughs) think about it like why why would I need that you know yeah it's very interesting it is definitely like a gaping hole um and we just miss out like on these larger conversations when people don't document this in real time it's like a living historian like we need these totally. people That's a great you know point. we need these storytellers to knit these things together and this is our history like these shows that come up and go down and they're just like these fast things that happen and they matter when they happen and then like I don't want someone to forget about it in 10 years except for someone mentioning it at a dinner party with like mm-hmm. a castmate they happen to be with that they've known since grad school like what these shows are locally like matter and they are like a reflection of what's on everybody's mind and like that fucking matters and like they should be contextualized in these larger things happening at these larger institutions I worked for Carolina Performing Arts in undergrad and um the person who was in charge of I just don't want to like put him on blast right now but the person who was in charge of programming there um has gone on to kind of be a program director at like a foundation etc I've had a lot of conversations with him about how he would choose the season back then because he spotted so many people that were honestly already the talk of the town but now Mm. are like next level and this was like 10 years ago and I'd always and I remember he would turn to me and tell me like when he didn't like certain things that were going up and I'd be like and I was so young I was just like well then why the fuck is this person here like why did you book them to do this whole fucking thing and he's like Charlotte like this is not about me and my taste this is about Mm -hmm. understanding what people are asking for right now and like what stories are being asked to be told and what stories are like electric and connecting with audiences 
that is its own skill that's apart from personal taste. And if people can't see that, they should not be in programming and or should not be critics because it's not just about personal taste. It's about understanding why something is happening on a larger level. So he booked things that like he wouldn't personally maybe go to as his top choice, but he was like, everybody fucking loves this and it's sold out. And I knew that would happen. And I knew that's what the culture was like asking for. And that's why I booked them. And I'm like, fuck, that is so mature. And that's what an educated opinion is. Like, I fucking love that, you know? And it's like this difference between, it's not exactly the the difference between subjectivity and objectivity, but it's understanding that your own personal likes and dislikes kind of have nothing to do with good art. Yes, totally. Sometimes they're connected. Sometimes they are. They're not always connected. They're not. (laughs) It is, there's an objectivity within it that gets super lost because people get so like flighty and emotional about art And it's like, it's not just about you and it's not just about your opinion. And it actually tells me how little you think about art critically that you Mm -hmm. would think this is just about like your whim and not about like a larger cultural important thing that is reflecting our history as a people. Like it's not just about like if you think something is pretty or not. So that Mm -hmm. makes me disrespect you so much as like a cultural critic to like not, you know, cultural critics. I mean, yeah, they're just like people people that we're making fun of, but yeah, Yeah. exactly. Like that's just not. And so it's just, it's so silly. And you're right. There's this like lack of a presence that's genuinely not silly. Like I don't know where that is in this world. (laughs) So going back to like thinking about, um, like taking your art seriously mm-hmm. and like taking this local stuff seriously. Mm-hmm. I've been thinking a lot about um, just like my own identity within all of these like little realities that I live in. Mm-hmm. You know, I've been doing these local gigs for a little less than a year, almost coming up on a year, probably like in March. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll be, I'll have been like doing the local New York circuit for a year. Right. And it's been so interesting to like experience this wide range of companies and also roles within those companies. Mm -hmm. You know, I've been working in choruses, I've been working with small parts and I've been working with leads and I've been working on getting rejected from lots and lots of things. And a lot of those places have money. A lot of those places have no money. Um, And it's just been so interesting to walk into a room over and over and be defined by the role you're doing and also by the vibe you bring into the room you know Mm -hmm. like it's kind of both um but coming in especially doing this last show which is kind of what sparked it um I'd never been a lead in the way that I had in this past show Mm -hmm. um and it's been so interesting to sort of like cosplay the identity of like the diva right 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 (laughs) yeah 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 yeah. of the show Mm -hmm. and I don't want to do it at first like it feels so embarrassing and weird but people really want you to do right. it when it's right. the role you're supposed to inhabit yes. and you're sort of failing them and failing yourself mm-hmm. by not like stepping into it mm-hmm. with like a, a level of grace. Mm-hmm. And I resisted it because I don't feel like a little superstar or like, you know, I want, it'll feel a little silly. Like I don't want people to think that I'm taking myself too seriously. Right, right, right. right? Like I'm always thinking about like, well, what's everyone else thinking about what mm-hmm, I'm doing mm-hmm, mm-hmm. when really they if you're the star of the show they want you to act like the star exactly and once I sort of like embraced that Mm -hmm. I kind of had fun with it um but it's so different than when you're showing up to do chorus work right Mm -hmm. and in that situation I can't walk in with this expectation that people are going to want me to be the star because people don't want that and I don't want that for myself Mm -hmm. and if I walked into that room with that identity I'd have a bad time Mm -hmm. like if I walked into a room where I was a lead acting like a chorister 
I would have a bad time. Yeah. And if I walked into one of my chorus gigs acting like I was the lead, I would have a bad time. Right. There's sort of this identity that you have to fully lean into and embrace. And it's like functional on some level. It's, fu- it's literally functional. Yeah. And it sounds so silly to be talking about like being a little star as like a functional aspect of your daily life. But like it really is. And also knowing when to step back and have a good time. Mm-hmm. Um, and it all feels silly because it all feels totally made up and like fake. But then you're like, oh, everything is made up and mm-hmm. fake. Like me being a member of the chorus, made up and fake. Me being this little star, made up and fake. Me getting rejected, <laughs> made up and fake. Me getting accepted, made up and fake. Yeah, People yeah, yeah. liking me, made up and fake. <laughs> <laughs> People not liking me, made up and fake. Yep. <laughs> and that kind of like releases you from all the levels of these like identities. Mm-hmm. So you can enjoy them. You can sort of like indulge. Um, you can play around. They're all equally important. And equally unimportant. It makes it made like leaning into being the lead, even when I'm self-conscious and like blushing, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is something I do a lot in rehearsal, um, a lot easier and more natural. Right. And then it also makes leaning into not getting the gig or, you know, working a smaller role when you wish you could have mm-hmm. the bigger role easier and more natural because it's just like a little hat you're putting on. Exactly. And we, this is something we've talked about so many times mm-hmm. especially in like our identity episode which is one that I think about a lot like me you know too. you kind yeah. of brought this idea of the avatar to me and like I was thinking of it as like this little bowl that I can dip my hand into and pull and pull out a little piece of myself that I'm bringing to the forefront and it's kind of a good practice to mm-hmm. know that like the whole bowl is always there yes it never disappears yes. and it allows you to sort of I don't know it's like you're acting, but like in a chill way. <laughs> totally, dude. Absolutely. Oh my God. I, I love how you describe it. And I love that like, it's ultimately like this functional thing. And I love that that's like what we talked about so much in the identity episode is like, this is mm-hmm. something that is useful to you and should be serving you. It's not like a dogma and it's not yeah. something that you have to ascribe to or change anything about yourself to fit into. It's more so like, discovering a modality that is playful and like adjusting it as you see fit for something to be playful it's literally just getting some distance for yourself like we all deserve a bit of distance from these identity signifiers that yeah feel so rigid whether they feel amazing or horrible exactly distance from either way man (laughs) basically we've been revisiting our avatar theories inspired by Cy Swoon that we originally recorded in our authenticity episode in 2021 which Perry just touched on and um, it's been interesting I think Perry's been revisiting it for these reviews and just sort of the work that you're doing and then Mm -hmm. I've been revisiting it because I'm currently taking a class with like a Cy Swoon adjacent her name is P she goes by P the fairy on insta and um, she's okay so here's her about on her website She says, I am P. I am an artist and spiritualist. Reality is my favorite medium to create with. She has these fun, basically like video game-like modalities to really give yourself a bit of distance from your definitions and presumptions about yourself and your reality. And it becomes this sort of container for creativity and fun, which I think is something that we sort of touched on in the episode with Cy Swoon's work, Mm -hmm. which is just that like it puts you in the driver's seat a bit and it kind of clarifies where you're sending your energy 
It distances yourself from the rigidity and stagnancy that things are one way and need to stay that way, which can be a good identity or an identity you're not happy with. Either way, Mm -hmm. you can find stagnation and rigidity and that's just not going to serve you because Mm -hmm. good or bad, no identity is going to be permanently one fixed thing and you need to be just sort of ready for that and not in a way that's serious. You just need to have this like levity and playfulness about how your life is going to always be adapting and shape-shifting. Totally. Otherwise, yeah. like, cause, because that's all you got. Like, you know mm-hmm. that things are going to change. So the only thing you can do is approach it with a playfulness. You know, re my original point like when I even when I got good reviews I just put it in this box of an affirmation of an identity totally. that I was rigid like I was rigidly in which is that like I am a student I am not good enough I am I need to learn a lot more I don't have a right mm-hmm. to like speak as an authority on my own work or on others work because I am like merely a young singer student and like there's tons of students that are like better than me or have done more things than me so I have a lot of work to do so I have to like keep my head down so it didn't matter what anybody fucking told me about myself that was the identity that I was like rigidly attached to so I saw everything through that lens whereas like now if I could put myself back in there with like this kind of like avatar playfulness thing we've been talking about for a couple years now I would have taken that moment to like fully embody this like gratitude and like congratulatory energy toward myself and be like wow I'm a star who received a star review like just enjoy this like fluid moment of being like you know, if that's the desired self I want to move toward, I can move toward that self in little steps every day of being like, this is a moment where I'm a star. I have like a star good review. And like, that's my reality right now. Like, but love. it's so when you're like not ready to do that, accepting the fact that you're a star is really hard. Yeah, you can't. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And it's actually so interesting because I feel like we talked about this with Sai Spoon a bit and P goes into this so much. I actually like wrote this down because I wanted to talk to you about it. I like bookmarked it. So she talks about like making goals when you make goals or you like decide on like what, you know, like your desired self might be or like what an avatar is that you want to play with. She says, like, you need to be really careful to, like, note the place you're making those goals from because you may choose to make a goal that is too far off just to further solidify this fact that you can't achieve Hmm. your goals. And I'm like, dude, like, deciding, like, when you get a rejection for something, being like, well, next year I'm going to be at, like, the Met, like, Lindemann program. So all these bitches will see. Like, you're see. They'll They'll see, see. right? (laughs) I have literally just further cemented myself as this identity of, like, failing or, like, being a failure or being someone who, like, isn't achieving what they want because I immediately, from this place of receiving something that I perceived as a failure, like a rejection, I immediately set a goal for myself that, you know, was so far off and felt far off to me. Mm -hmm. And yet I set it as an expectation for myself, further confirming when I don't achieve it, I'm going to fail. And like, that doesn't mean that I can't get into that program, but I felt like I couldn't, but told myself I had to, Mm -hmm. I chose something that was so far off. So it's like exactly that. Like you have to like, yeah, like maintain this playfulness and not let that just be another thing that affirms for you that like this rigidity of like, well, then I have to feel like I'm a superstar all the time. Cause it's like, if that feels far away, yeah. then it is, then don't choose that as your goal. You know, like we, it's so easy for us to take something that could be pleasurable and fun and playful and immediately get so serious about it and just make it another thing that feeds into negativity or feeds into like difficulty, you know, when it should be totally. fun. Anyway. Another thing that reminds me of is going through this process and trying to figure it out 
it's equal parts about being able to laugh at yourself and knowing when you are not going to fucking laugh at yourself anymore. Mm -hmm. Like Mm -hmm. I have been having these experiences with having to be on stage and having people on stage consider me beautiful. Mm -hmm. That makes me very uncomfortable. It makes Mm -hmm. me want to laugh at myself Mm -hmm. and it makes me want to not take myself seriously. Mm -hmm. And in relaxing my different identities and chilling out. Yeah. I have to not laugh. Yeah. Like you'd think that like by relaxing into these, you're like, ha I'm so silly. But when you have to be serious and gorgeous mm-hmm. on stage, you have to be, you know, there's not a yeah, smile. Like it's not funny. You're not it, giggling. Yeah. It exactly. just is what it is. Like this is just what it is and right now. And that's been really hard. Like yeah. I'm almost too willing to sort of laugh at myself and be like, oh, silly me. Like I'm like goofy. Yeah. I'm not like gorgeous and beautiful. Mm. <laughs> um. But relaxing that rigidity has meant that I am a little more serious. I love that. In a way. Yeah. So it's been interesting to play in that. I am someone who is so inclined to laugh at herself. Yeah. That I won't allow myself to inhabit, like, the identity of a very serious, gorgeously sexy actress. Yeah. Like, I can't. That makes me so uncomfortable. That's so interesting. And so, like, your (laughs) version of playfulness is being, like, I am comfortable with just inhabiting a version of myself that's unusual to me and like just mm-hmm. being like no 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 like I can do that like I can do whatever and I I'm want. not laughing yeah, anymore it's yeah. not funny it's just like <laughs> a thing that I'm doing and that's yeah. what it is that is yeah. so interesting I fucking love right? that yeah and it's like the same with my teacher is fucking obsessed with me singing Carmen he has not sold me mm-hmm. I don't want to do it in auditions I don't think mm-hmm. that's like the solution to my current problem yeah. of trying to get hired yeah but all of that aside, like the objective truth of it aside, there is something within me that is very uncomfortable mm-hmm. with walking up to a panel of strangers and saying, I'm your Carmen. Mm, like that I feels just don't feel like off. I can do that. Yeah. It's embarrassing. Yeah. It's just like, oh my God, I'm not. I'm mm-hmm. like silly and like very, um, uh, <laughs> what, what did he say? In incongruously Scandinavian, <laughs> you know, like I can't be me when like who the fuck cares? Yeah, it's acting like, like yeah. whatever. Yeah, 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 totally. It's like, like you have to. Trying, mm-hmm. I can't laugh at myself. Like Carmen doesn't really. There are places where you could do it, but there's like a level of like. Yeah, there's gravity to her sexuality that really scares me. Yeah, and I think in releasing myself and playing with my own identity, I have to find a little more gravity. Yeah, I love that. Like you choosing to take your character shifts seriously. Like this character exactly. shift is real. Like I'm not faking this. Like I am truly yeah. inhabiting this new character. This new exactly. avatar is like very literally what I'm inhabiting, and it's like mm-hmm. not a joke and it's not fake. Like I am inhabiting mm-hmm. this new part of myself period I'm not, I want to be in on the joke yes when I do and I, yes. and I can't be in on the joke when I'm being this serious sexy gorgeous woman absolute absolute oh my god that is so real it kind of goes back to the review thing of like preemptively saying something yes. about yourself that you're exactly. afraid other people are gonna say yeah like I know I'm not really pulling off the sexiness like I know like you know whatever. whereas like Perry sexy avatar would never think that anybody would be questioning her sexiness yeah, not even a single question yeah. yeah oh my god that is so cool <laughs> I just love that this is so functional like you can just find ways to do this everyone has like a thing in their daily life that they can like play with this with you know yeah yeah oh my god oh there was one other thing about the the classes that I think was so applicable to opera so like the first class we ever took she talks about how we have finite energy in the day to focus on stuff And she was like, you can focus on your desire, which like could be whatever you want it to be. It could be something very small, could be something very big, whatever. Um, Or you might be focusing on like the absence of your desire. Like, I don't know Hmm. what I want or like what I want feels impossible or like 
Um, yeah, something like that. Or you could be focusing on like the rejection of your desire. Like I can't have what I want or like, I'm going to continue to fail at what I want. Or like I critically judge other people who have what I want. Cause I don't think they do it as well as I would do it. Sure. Like, something like that. Yeah. So she's like, you really need to think about like, are you directing your energy toward your desires and like just finding little minute ways to do them during the day? Or like, are you directing most of your energy toward the rejection of your desire or the absence <laughs> of it? And I'm like, oh my God, every time like I got a rejection from opera, I was, all I did was focus on the rejection of my desire. So of course it was the self-fulfilling prophecy. Like, and it's not even totally. like a mystical thing. It's really like you do drive your reality in so many ways that you don't even think about. So of course, if I'm constantly focusing on the rejection of my desire, like like that was the thing that kept that was me reading those good reviews as bad mm -hmm. I was writing the story before my eyes totally you know totally I just fucking love that it's so applicable to like things that we do since we're constantly receiving rejection yeah and for so many years I felt like I was doing the smart thing by assuming I was going to get rejected by everything mm -hmm. I thought that was like a safe way to protect myself mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. when really I think I was like shape. I mean, there are a couple of things at play, like, sure, you know, of course. my, my, whatever, my technique probably wasn't there, but it's very safe and overprotective mm -hmm, mm -hmm, to assume mm -hmm. you're going to get rejected from everything. Yeah. And it just kind of like, it's almost like turns into this confirmation. Yes. Which on some level makes it easy mm -hmm. to get rejected. Cause you're like, I knew it. I don't even have to open the email. Right. I know I got right, rejected. Right. Yeah. But there's like a lack of like being able to push forward yes. if that's all you're doing. It's a rigidity. Yeah. It's the stagnancy again. Yes. Rigidity. Rigidity. Totally. But yeah. Anyway, everything's cool. We solved everything. Everything's <laughs> perfect now. <laughs> we have all the answers. <laughs> Literally. Um, and also, I don't know if I should like set this up now, mm -hmm. but obviously this episode isn't over as you're listening. Oh yeah. Set it up. We're hitting the streets <laughs> with a new segment that I'm calling... TTA hits the streets <laughs> um, and it's something that I'm that we're playing with and we hope you enjoy and I'll probably have like some more of a setup you know yeah yeah, yeah. we can have our little ad break lol no, literally. Um, and then get into this next segment um, but yeah so we'll I guess pass it off to future me <laughs> outside of her apartment <laughs> Welcome to our newest segment, which we are calling TTA Hits the Streets. It's where we, TTA, hit the streets. <laughs> we are leaving the comfort of our warm little apartments where we have recorded all of our podcast episodes, and we are venturing out into the great unknown, into the wild blue yonder. Who knows what we'll find, who we'll talk to, what we'll learn, what we'll unlearn. Uh, today, for our very first installment of this segment, I am venturing out into Manhattan, specifically Chelsea, specifically 23rd and 8th, specifically the Cell Theater, where I am attending, I believe it, it was the first dress rehearsal for The Smallest Sound in the Smallest Space, a play by Bryce McClendon and directed by Katie Early, produced by the Y Collective. The play takes place at an undergraduate music school and centers around sexual harassment allegations, a story that is unfortunately familiar to many of us. The plot happens within a voice studio and is told through a series of voice lessons. Um, so I, Charlotte and I, are acquainted and friends with many people involved in this production. 
and I was so, so excited to get the opportunity to um, wander across the river and into this rehearsal where I will hopefully talk to Bryce and Katie and maybe Sydney and Julian and whoever else has a minute to spare in what I'm sure will be a very, very busy rehearsal process. Um, but I'm looking to kind of like create a sonic world with this little segment. I want to capture the sound, the space of this rehearsal. I want it to feel like I'm envisioning like an NPR segment, you know, who knows? I have no idea <laughs> what's going to happen. We've never done anything like this before, but I'm very excited. Um, so come along with me and let's see what we can uncover and discover and become acquainted with in this little rehearsal. All right, here we go. So I hopped off the train at 23rd and walked like half a block west on this deceptively kind of warm Wednesday evening. I suppose maybe it just feels a little warm because it's been so cold and dreary earlier this week. But I arrived at the theater fucking gorgeous building. It doesn't even look like a theater at first. It's just this spectacular brownstone. But you look a little closer and you're like, oh, that's the poster for the show that I'm going to. And the poster is this gorgeous piece of art by Givens Parr, who's actually also the dramaturg for this show. Um, so I inspected the poster, snapped a few pictures of it, and then walked inside where I was immediately met with Bryce, who was so warm and lovely, immediately wrapped me up in a hug and swept me upstairs so we could do um, a little interview so I could hear more about the piece from their point of view. Would you like to introduce yourself? Introduce myself. My name is, my name is Bryce McClendon. I am a playwright and a librettist and a countertenor. My pronouns are they, them, and I'm uh, the writer of The Smallest Sound in the Smallest Space, premiering at the Cell Theater this weekend. So I'm here at, we're in tech week right now, and this is, is this a final dress? Uh, it is a dress rehearsal. We have another dress rehearsal tomorrow night, but it'll be an invited audience. So this is our sort of last shot with just the production and creative team in the room. Um, and tomorrow night we're going to be doing it in front of real people, which I think we're all really ready to do and excited to do. You can hear all the doors slamming as people get ready. It's live theater. Everything's happening. Um, so can you tell me a little bit about the piece and your role in the piece and conceptualizing it? Sure. Um, the Smallest Sound in the Smallest Space is set in a university voice studio. And it follows four students in that studio as they remember and show us as an audience their recollections of their time working with their teacher who is under investigation for sexual misconduct. And so there are these two events speaking to one another across the piece. There are their conversations with a university officer who is investigating the allegations and having conversations with them for the purpose of witness testimony. And then there are their memories of their lessons, which do play out in real time throughout the course of the play. Um, I wrote it initially just because I was interested and compelled by the idea of having the voice studio as a setting for a play in general. Um, I obviously have spent most of my professional career and education 
in that environment and I know a lot about it. Um, and I believed that it was a, the, a ripe setting to, to give a lot of dramatic uh, energy. And so it, it began that way and then developed into a piece that was really about university integrity measures and sort of memory and testimony and justice. And you are yourself a performer, have a degree in vocal performance. How has it been to be on the other side of the proverbial table, kind of creating this piece, auditioning people? How has that kind of integrated with your identity as a performer? That's a great question. I love that question. I've uh, around the time that we were doing the casting of this, people were asking me this a lot. Like, it must be great to be on the other side of the table, and it was. Especially as the creator of this piece, it was really cool to watch people come in and interpret it differently. And even now, in the context of this production, you know, we are working with principal cast members and covers, and and the interpretations that we see vary from role to role in really significant ways that are cool to watch, but also it is stressful <laughs> it is a lot to manage and the play is is a full length play it's a big mama so like there's a lot of potential for just continual change while we're developing it i think i've been really surprised by just in the day to day surely how much has to be done in order to execute something at this scale um and that's been a really important learning experience for me as somebody like continuing to write um, and continuing to, to develop projects that are that are similar in the sense of being plays but involving classical vocal music. Um, I've learned a lot about how to do that and have been working with a really dynamic team. So I think uh, it's been it's been inspiring and also very very challenging so i i'm i'm grateful for that i think it's there are things i'm gonna do a lot better the next time i do it and i'd love to hear a little bit more about how you are integrating classical music as i understand this is a straight play that involves music because it takes place in a music school how did you sort of hmm so the music that is being performed is song like from the classical canon sure yeah so the 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 play is in two acts and it's structured so that the entire play should trace the general action of a voice lesson so the first half of the show shows these four students in the first half of a voice lesson so they are vocalizing they're checking in with the teacher they're talking about what's coming up they're you know catching up and then in the second half we get into the repertoire and they're drilling arias for auditions that they have or they are working on their recital repertoire for their degree recitals. And so a, a lot of my effort was just to sort of show the truth of a lesson environment and to map the structure of the play across what it would standardly be in a university setting. So the, the music that I chose to include was things that often reveal themselves there. Um, a tenor sings Dies to prepare for his uh, young artist program audition the next day. A soprano sings a Handel aria because she's doing it in the opera at the theater or at the, at the lyric theater at the school. You know, a mezzo-soprano sings Ansurdine from Debussy Fetkaland because she is preparing it for her degree recital. And so I was trying to be as, as truthful to, those, to that varied amount of repertoire uh, in the University of Oyster Studio as I could be. 
And how did you go about picking that rep? Were you going for things that are really typically seen a lot? Were you looking for any sort of like poetry that was kind of connected to the text you were writing? Great question. Yeah, I think that the the choice of of repertoire is a mixture. I think something like Despiltness came up very obviously and easily to me just because I, I, you know, I've heard so many undergraduate and graduate level tenors working on that and drilling that and being freaked out about starting with that in their auditions. And so I, it felt very obvious to me to choose for the character I was developing. Volate Amori from Ario Dante is the handle aria. I am a countertenor. I love... I love Handel, so I ne- I sort of wanted to include that, and it just felt natural for this for this role. And then Osrudin is the most thematically connected to the play, in ways that I don't want to reveal. But there is a pivotal scene in the second act where Britain is rehearsing it with the teacher, and a lot of the thematic content of the show around body autonomy and around voice teaching comes from and and hangs on that scene in particular and I think the poetry speaks to it in a deliberate way that I that I so I made a very specific choice there to lift this poem and this very difficult to sing song and include it as as dramatic material one of the things I'm trying to show with the content of the smallest sound in the smallest space is it's it's it centers around this very specific investigation into sexual harm into sexual transgression transgression in a student and teacher relationship but it's mostly showing the environment around that harm and the way that we have normalized as singers in studios with our teachers different forms of other violations different forms of boundary crossing there is a scene in the second act where the where Kent, the teacher, is making one of his students touch her pianist in a way that she's clearly uncomfortable with. I don't know any of us who haven't sat in a master class where a clinician has brought up, you know, somebody for the soprano to sing the aria to on stage. There are so many things that we commonly do that just make us uncomfortable, that are microaggressions that can actually lead to more insulated and more magnified forms of, as I have been saying in other conversations, capital H harm. And I wrote this piece for an audience of people that I knew had been through those experiences, who had been in voice studios, and a lot of the people who are who were involved in this show have also been through investigations like this. I will say I wrote it for singers, and I wrote it for people that I knew might have experienced coercion in any form from a mentor, but I think I was surprised by just how common that is as it has opened up to a wider audience and as it has been cast and and as I've built out, you know, who who is going to play these roles, I've been surprised how much it has related to them. It's a piece about memory and it's a piece about having to express the discomfort of that those experiences without really being ready to talk about them. And so I've I've been really gratified to see people be in this show who have wanted to have some sort of opportunity to express what that's meant for them. And I think that that's been a a significant uh, uh, gift that I've gotten as a writer to see manifest this piece mean something to the people that are involved in it.
we are i'm very grateful to share we are like pretty completely sold out we had to add a performance because of how quickly we sold tickets and that sold pretty quickly as well we're in a limited run that we're hoping to turn into an extended run but i will also plug the fact that we have a live stream available that looks really really good we've been testing it it looks and sounds great and it is available to people who get tickets on demand for two weeks to watch whenever they want to. It's not the sort of deal where you have to tune in to the one performance where we live stream. So I really hope people who might be listening to this who are uh, inspired by or interested in what the piece is about, who want to see it but aren't in New York, can't get to the performance, can't get a ticket now, will consider doing that. Um, and also just we hope that this has a, a future beyond this piece and we hope that it moves to other places in the country besides New York because New York is not the only people with singers who know this or New York is not the only place with singers who know this story and singers who can do this piece. So, yeah. And with that lovely conversation ringing in my ears, Bryce left me to go do what they do best, which is run this show. <laughs> um and I was left to kind of explore the space and see who was willing to chit-chat with me next. So I was upstairs on the second level of the theater, kind of overlooking the set and the audience. It was a really beautiful picture. I actually did snap a picture, sort of a bird's eye view of the set. Uh, very quintessential vocal studio, complete with great singers on great singing. That book, I'm sure all of you can like picture that heinous pink and orange cover. <laughs> I'm sure like every single one of your university voice teachers had that book somewhere in their room and it is featured prominently on the piano of this set. As I descended the stairs to the main performance space, it's also where the audience is set up, one of the actors started playing the piano. So I slid into one of the seats right next to Katie Early, the director. Katie is a director, an actor, and a singer, so I was really curious to hear her take on um, fluctuating identity in the rehearsal room. How are you doing, Katie? I'm so well, Parody Christina. <laughs> I can't believe that you're sitting right next to me right now. I know. I know. <laughs> Katie and I went to Oberlin together, and we did our junior recital together. Katy Perry live in concert, uh, 2012 or whatever it was. No, whatever. It was, I think it was earlier than, no, no. 2013. Yeah, 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 yeah. So how are you feeling? I'm really thrilled that we're in that precarious moment, but moment of big opportunity moving out of like the mud of tech into, oh my gosh, we have a show. So that's kind of, that's what's, to, that it will be what tonight will be. I think we'll see some performances blossom. It's very exciting. The Y Collective is so known for bringing on people with hybrid performing identities. So, you know, multi-hyphenates galore. So I think from the beginning, uh, we knew we were going to be working with a team of people who both act and play piano and sing and do tech things on the side. So everybody was sort of bringing in... Um, those multiple identities, including myself, as you said, I do have a performance background and um, and I direct, and uh, it's been fun. Uh, it's been fun to yeah, just work with other people who are so comfortable um, putting on different hats, um, and and uh, for most of these folks, they are singers first, perhaps, um, 
and some of some of whom are actors first and sort of stepping into the role of or into the world of um opera that this play inhabits and so there was also kind of a there's like a vulnerability in in taking on um a role that might ask of you to do the thing that you don't do as often in your hybrid artistic identities so that was a little vulnerable at first but folks got so much confidence after just like blowing themselves away of like oh wait I, I can do this because I know this world like they're they're not just I don't know they're not being asked to take on characters that they don't know they know these people so well because they've they're singers they've lived in the world of classical voice for you know most of us like decades now so I think there was like a I'm sort of rambling but th there was a big um it was a confidence booster for people to like remember that they know these people so deeply. It's not a big stretch to in embody these characters that they've like grown up with. I've seen the word plopra. <laughs> so tell me a little bit about plopra, what it means and what it means to you. Okay, so um, almost the genesis of my collaboration on this piece, well, it was, I was at Opera Neo singing as a singer, as a mezzo-soprano <laughs> in 2018. Uh, and I was there with Sydney Anderson, who's producing this piece and the artistic director of the Y Collective. And Bryce McClendon was there as a singer. We were all there floating around singing our songs. And so was Dane Suarez. Um, if anyone knows Dane out there, I'm sure many of you do. An incredible tenor who was just in Montag at Soho Rep, which is a play that has some opera singing in it. And he was singing. And so I kept loving this hashtag that I kept seeing him use on Instagram of plopera, meaning the hybrid of a play and an opera, a plopera. My mom loves it too. She can't shut up about coming to see my plopera. How's the plopera going? Um, so we really just stole it from Dane. Well, stole it. I got permission. I explicitly texted him or emailed him to get permission to keep quoting him around town. Uh, so yes, we are in the hybrid form of plopera. I love it. I can't wait to see it. Thanks, Perry. I'm so excited for you to see it. Katie went back to ruling the roost and flexing her multi-hyphenate powers, and I stepped gingerly onto the stage at the Cell Theater to see if the person playing the piano was willing to chat with me. That person's name? Morgan Mastrangelo. So Morgan, tell me about your place in this show, your place in the world, your identity as a singer, as a performer. I have been pretty much a multi-hyphenate since... I stepped on stage, much to the ire of my professors, teachers, coaches, and anyone who came into contact with me in like an organized educational environment. I started in musical theater while playing classical piano, and that was kind of my first ordered interaction with classical music and performance as a whole. And then I studied opera in college because I was good at it enough to get into school, and I didn't know how to dance, so I was not in any musical theater programs and I thought you know singing in other languages is fun and I rode that horse up until graduation at which point I kind of had a little identity crisis I had spent all of college performing in musicals and not operas because musical conservatories tend to favor the graduate students in opera casting so I didn't really get a lot of stage experience and then the pandemic happened and I kind of locked myself in my parents' attic and thought about what it is I really liked to do and started discovering a lot of historical opera recordings and really fell in love with 
kind of this vitality and the historical aspect of classical music. And I got really into Baroque stuff and Johann Sebastian Bach, who I'm now fully in love with. And that kind of spurred um, my my want to move to New York. And I fell right in the chamber music and sacred music scene here. I sing a ton of Baroque polyphony and Renaissance music, which is just so much fun. And I came into this orbit through um, James Smith, who you just had on the pod recently. And after taking a few lessons with James, I really fell in love with this kind of old world inspired way of singing that was absent from my conservatory teaching and it spurred kind of this new renaissance in my solo performing and I was introduced to James partner Bryce who had written this work and I instantly felt right at home because it was the world that I had been in for the past four years and I was overhearing what you and Katie were talking about earlier how all of these performers they felt so at home because it was their world and similar to that I it was so strange coming in and reading this script and seeing my true life just put directly on stage. And there aren't a lot of works of theater that kind of speak to the undergraduate vocal experience, but it's a very strange world that has been <laughs> experienced by like hundreds, nay, thousands of people <laughs> across the United States. And if we can give like one under, like undergraduate invoice performance a, a feeling of oh my god like that has happened to me and now I see this on stage it just validates like all of the mistreatment that classical musicians face in academic institutions and I'm just thrilled to be here it's fun to play with the other actors everybody here like I think six out of seven of us are full-time classical singers in the city and just to be amongst your own like it feels like people are reading each other's minds just with jokes and and bits and the bits are just legendary it's just so much fun when I learned what this play was about I was first shocked and then shocked that I hadn't seen something like it before because I totally agree with you this experience that we all go through is very singular but I think so compelling in so many horrible but kind of entrancing ways like it's such a strange world it reminds me of like seeing tar <laughs> Um, the public and like the art community writ large is so entranced with like the conservatory environment portrayed in art, like with Tar and with Black Swan and with Whiplash. Everybody seems to view it as almost kind of parallel to sports films. It's like you have the, the power structure of like the person who's in charge of everybody else and then the young upstart trying to upset the order. And it doesn't exactly work that way per se but like that mythos of like the power structure of organized sports is something that everybody just really seems to think classical music is like and you see it in like the only other kind of extant depiction of the conservatory opera environment on stage Masterclass by Terence McNally and what I really loved um, what Bryce said about this play is it's kind of like Masterclass but backstage like you get to see what the power imbalances that are present in classical music wrought onto um, the people who suffer under them. It's really fascinating. From my glamorous seat on the stage at the Cell Theater, I caught Sydney Anderson's eye. Sydney is the founder and artistic director of the Y Collective, a group of artists and thinkers dedicated to a roundtable style of artistic inception and creation, and the shepherds behind the smallest sound in the smallest space. 
I grabbed her and we ran upstairs for a quick little chat. Okay, I'm back backstage with the incredible Sydney Anderson. Sydney, how are you doing? I am elated. I'm so excited to be here and pumped to see the show again. I'm very pumped too. I love the way it looks. Can you talk a little bit about the Y Collective um, identity, maybe like multi-hyphenate artists, anything that resonates with you? Oh, I mean, you just nailed it. Multi-hyphenate artists. I um, I started this because I got tired of having to hide other artistic disciplines that I was interested in. I felt like um, each classical art world sort of creates its own silo. Um, and they all felt very insular to me, even though I spent much of my life uh, studying classical ballet. Um, I spent much of my life as a classical flutist. Um, I had to sort of hide those skills <laughs> in the opera world. And so I started to question why <laughs> that might be. And I started to question um, what would happen if we invited all of these people into a space uh, who didn't feel like they fit into one box or one category to, to play and create narrative and conversation through different artistic disciplines at the same time. Um, and it's been a whirlwind year, <laughs> and uh, Bryce's play is like the perfect example of, of what happens when you mash two disciplines together. You get the plopra. <laughs> About a year ago, Bryce sent the script to me just to read, to be an early reader of the piece, and um, initially asked me to, to read the role of Lizzie um, if there was ever a, a future production of it. Of course, I said yes. I participated in the initial reading of the piece last September, and um, at that time, I was granted a residency here at the Cell Theater through the Y Collective. Um, and as I was building the residency, I realized that the themes of the other pieces seemed to all fit into the category of like taking one's inner voice and expressing it on the outside in some way. And so the more I thought about it, I wanted to plug this play into the residency if I could. And in order to do that, I knew I would need to step out of, of the performer role and put on the producer hat. And to be honest, I'm so thrilled that I did that because Rachel Policar is playing the role and I now can't imagine anyone else doing it. She's doing just an immaculate job. So what's next with the Y Collective? What's up after Smallest Sound in the Smallest Space? I'm so glad you asked. Um, our next show after this is a, a workshop of this play called Words of the Prophets by Vale Larkin. And this is a hard play to categorize. You know, we have the plopra with this one, which feels <laughs> pretty easy to smash together. This one is is very particular. It's a poem. It's a long form poem. Um, and the characters are played by silent body actors or dancers. Um, and we also have uh, ASL artists and deaf actors portraying the narrator of the piece. And so you have all these layers of communication that are not what you're used to in a play. Um, so we've, we've toyed with calling it a, a poetic ballet, a theatrical poem, things like that. Um, but we're really excited to explore how that works in this space. And with that, Sydney was off. And I sneakily snuck and crept backstage to see if I could get a glimpse of some performers in their natural habitat. And I immediately ran straight into Robert Cologne, intrepid assistant stage manager, cover, and countertenor extraordinaire. How has it been assistant stage managing and covering? It's been a fun time. <laughs> it has been like a balancing act, but definitely each day finding a little bit more of that and uh, having that backstage experience that 
uh, a lot of us performers don't really get to learn about has been, you know, a, a real treat. Cool. So the episode that we're adding these interviews onto, um, we talked a lot about identity and kind of a fluctuating identity. Like whenever you go into a new gig, into a new rehearsal space, kind of understanding your role, your position. So how has this been for you, especially as someone who is doing backstage and onstage work? I think it feels like a good amount of responsibility, <laughs> especially with a show like this where there are a lot of little props and... Um, but luckily, we have a great cast, and everyone is so responsible. And I think having the performing experience, basically I do what I would do for myself, mm -hmm. but just for everyone else. I turned around and was immediately confronted with one of the coolest sweaters I've ever seen. Deep blue and just a huge piano splash right on top of it. I looked up, and it was Nathaniel Lanasa, who's playing the character Mel and music directing the show. And who are you playing, Nathaniel? I'm playing Mel. And who's Mel? Uh, Mel's a collaborative piano student. He's sort of like um, caught up in all of this. I actually don't know. I mean, the script says he's a collaborative piano student, but my sort of mythology I built around him is that um, he's actually studying piano and just kind of playing voice lessons to make some extra money. Um, I sort of feel him being like, uh, like roped into this drama that he didn't really sign up for and it kind of like changes his view of the whole industry and like makes him rethink his life choices. So you're mainly a pianist. Are you also an actor, an actor, pianist, a pianist, actor? I am now. It's <laughs> <laughs> very exciting. So how has this experience been for you? Like how has it informed your understanding of your own identity? That's a really interesting question. Um, I think I'm also doing a little bit of music directing and I have found for myself it's like kind of weird to go from like giving notes to taking notes like in the span of like the same five minutes you know and like just kind of getting more skillful in myself like switching between those and um, being kind of open in both directions that's been like a really good challenge and like worthwhile I think it makes me a better colleague you know a better human honestly. While I was talking to Nathaniel, I made eye contact with Julian Wilde, who is the director of production at the Y Collective and is the technical director of this show specifically. I'd been trying to talk with him for like the past 30 minutes, but he's been running around doing the job of like five different people. And I saw him and I saw him make a face that was like, I have a minute free, let's make this happen. And I was like, hell yeah. So I followed him up the stairs yet again, not one, but two flights to have another little chat. Okay, I'm traveling, I'm on the move. We're going upstairs. We're going upstairs. There's a lot of stairs. <laughs> so we're backstage, but no longer downstairs. We are now upstairs. And I'm with Julian, who, what is your, you're one of the co-creators of the Y Collective? Uh, I'm the director of production for the Y Collective. I'm an artist in residence with the collective, and I'm definitely one of the OG members, um, but I'm not a founder, I wouldn't say. But I'm in charge of all the technical elements that go into our productions, hiring and staffing and design and all of that stuff. Um, so I'm the technical director for this play. And I am also a sound artist in residence and a singer-songwriter and an actor. And so I do a lot of stuff. And one of the great things about the Y Collective is that we are an interdisciplinary arts collective. We want to offer folks a chance to do more than one skill in every production. So artists on one project become administrators or technicians on other projects. And we get a chance to show all of our colors 
not just one. And I think that that allows us to build more dynamic experiences and give artists an opportunity to be a deeper part of the creative process going through it. So this project in particular has given me a chance to explore what it's like to be at the administration level of an organization and to learn all of those lessons the hard way at times, uh, what it's like to have to be someone's manager or someone's boss or to plan meetings and to generate contracts and apply for grants and deal with residency uh, paperwork with the cell theater where we're at. So there's there's a lot here for me. It, it kind of feels like drinking from a fire hose at times, um, but my focus is to create a loving and human, pro-human creative space, no matter what our venture is, whether we're building a music video or a public performance that's a flash mob or we're putting a, a play up in a theater, I think that artists are points of trauma inside of creative organizations and institutions everywhere, especially academia. And I think we want to fight that. I think we want to push back on that and give artists maybe a place where they can feel safe during their process and seen and heard. And so that's been my mandate and it's really tough, but it's really fulfilling and I think we've done a good job. Um, I'm lucky. My, my father is an actor and a singer-songwriter. My mom is a stage manager, so I grew up backstage at plays. I've seen the process happen all the way from inception, all the way through you know, the, the post-show and the strike. So I have a chance to put a lot of those lessons into practice here. And being, like you said, sort of being a, a multi-hyphenate person, I have a chance to be kind of good at a lot of things and not truly great at one thing, uh, which is really difficult to do. Uh, either way, no matter how you how you choose that in your life, but I'm I'm fortunate to have this breadth of experience uh, behind me, and also I should say like what I've learned is that I have a whole bunch of people here I can trust. That's been the biggest lesson for me is that I can delegate with trust and with love to someone and let them shine. And every time I do that, it takes something off my back and that feels great, yes, but also what I've done is I've facilitated someone else's opportunity to show their skills, their talent, and to learn their lessons and have their life experience, which is just as important, uh, if not more. So uh, yeah, that's, that's what I think about that. Okay, so at this point, it's like 6.56. The call was at 6, the run starts at 7. I've been hanging around these people for 56 minutes while they're trying to do their jobs and I'm like in their faces with a huge microphone attached to my fucking iPad. So I'm like, okay, it's probably time for me to leave. I put my coat on, amazing coat, put my scarf on, amazing scarf. I love my winter wear. I'm ready for the evening and I'm ready to leave, but not quite. So I sort of act, I make all this noise like I'm gonna leave, but I sneak backstage one more time to try to get a little more of like that sonic ambiance of a show that's about to begin and I run into Sophie Delphus. Sophie is covering Britain in this production and is actually going on um, on Saturday and went on for this final dress. I talked to Sophie about her experience covering her experience singing some fun French songs in this show and a little bit more about identity. Uh, I am covering the role of Britain. I'm a mezzo, so I am the other Heather Jones, basically. Perfect timing. Uh, I am going on tonight because they could not be here, and I will be going on on Saturday matinee. Yes, that is accurate. So I'm used to doing a lot of code switching between 
types of performance in some ways. Uh, I have not been in a play in quite a ways, quite a time. Yes, yes, we're at places. Um, quite honestly, my experience of this rehearsal process is not going to rehearsals. Uh, <laughs> so <laughs> as someone who has been a cover, I just have not really been involved very much. And it's just really this week, learning the script, last minute, going in. Um, so yes and no, I don't know. And I'm kind of used to that at the same time for a bunch of other things as well, because I'm always kind of overscheduling myself. So in some ways, this is uh, much of the same. I don't know, like coaching the song felt very much, you know, of a, of a same style as what I'm used to, of course. I'm sorry, what song are you singing in the show? I sing En Sourdine by Debussy, um, which I learned for this. It's great because I had never learned it, even though it's major kind of standard repertoire. I got to see the show kind of top to tail for the first time last night. And it was really nice to see people be actors and, in my humble opinion, carried off really well. And it's just really <laughs> lovely. So now I'm going to go backstage. Oh, my God. Thank you, places. And with that serendipitous call at the perfect time during my recording, I knew that I had gotten what I needed, and I said goodbye to all of these incredible artists, multi-hyphenates, creators, performers, and I left the cell theater with a big thud because their beautiful doors are very heavy, and I should have been a little more careful when I left the building. Okay, how fun was that? Oh, thanks for tuning in, everyone. <laughs> what a fun app. Thanks for being here with us, as always. Yes. Thanks for playing with us and inhabiting new identities and traveling around Manhattan. Literally, retweet, subscribe, comment below. Send us a DM, slide into our DMs. As always, we cannot wait to hear your little thoughts. <laughs> Okay, we. I'm Perry. And I'm Charlotte. And we are thrilled to announce. Core, core in grado, What's that mean, War in Grado? Ungrateful heart. Tutto è Thank you.